You know, we alcoholics have got in our minds up here a little resentment replay machine. I guess Elanons do too, but I know we alcoholics do. And we get up in the morning and we clean the lens on it. We want to, we don't want to miss anything. We want to, we shine it on the world all day long with a clean set of lens so we can record everything that they do to us that day that is bad. We don't want to record none of that good junk. We record nothing but bad stuff. Go home in the evening, sit down in our even at our easy chair, play it over our head, make ourselves sick, and blame others for doing so. There's some days though that we have a bad day. There's days they won't do anything bad to us. That's a bad day for an alcoholic. It's a bad day for an alcoholic. Because we're shining around the world and we're waiting to record and they don't do anything that we can record. And that's a bad day for one of us. You know what we record those days? By God, we record what they're thinking. That's what we do. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Greetings from Studio AA, deep in the heart of Texas. That was the voice of Mr. Charlie that you heard at the beginning of this here episode number 330. Joe and Charlie, part seven, the big book comes alive and you are going to hear so much more from them and un momento, but first things first, this episode right here is made possible by Nathan and Marie and Michelle. And what you may ask, did Nathan and Marie and Michelle do? Well, they went to, they, they paid a visit to our Humble little website, www.soberspeak.com. Click on the little yellow donate tab. And they made a contribution. So thank you so much, Nathan, Marie, and Michelle. This here episode is coming right out to you. And if you are out there and you're feeling a little restless, irritable, and discontent today... Well, we are glad you have joined us. We're here to uh, help uh, smooth out your day a little bit. Or maybe you're exercising right now, or maybe you are uh, doing shopping. Uh, maybe you're taking care of your family. Maybe you are uh, doing all kinds of things. Whatever the reason you have joined us, 
We are excited that you are here. I know, I know, I know there, there are so many things that you could be doing with your time. And I'm grateful that you have uh, invested your time in the, my silly little uh, podcast here. And uh, I appreciate you guys. All right, let's get on right on into Mr. Joe and Charlie today. This is part seven. And um, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, maybe you've never heard of Joe and Charlie. Um, well, these are a team of a couple of guys who actually is Joe McQuaney and Charlie Parmley are their names. They have died. They've gone on to the big meeting in the sky. They died in uh, 2007 and 2011, respectively. Uh, they met in 1973, and they worked together for like three, three decades uh, to help people understand the big book and apply the big book before they came along. Well, I want to say no, nobody, but uh, they were the first ones that kind of got some traction with taking a book that was archaic, so to speak, had a lot of old timey language and people couldn't quite follow it sometimes. And they put it in ways that they had simple stories. They have simple stories that they, how they describe the big and they, they describe some of the history of the big book and they made it where people could understand these steps and implement them in their lives. And they, I definitely listened to them when I first got sober and they tr truly did help the big book come alive for me. So yeah, uh, just uh, what what else was I going to say? Nothing. All right. So uh, we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this here episode with Joe and Charlie. I hope you enjoy and uh, join us on the back end of this for uh, the listener feedback. We will. We have plenty. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. I'm sorry. See, I could go and edit that out, but I'm not going to because I don't want to take the time. God bless y'all. Enjoy them. And we'll talk to you on the back end. He's very effectively blocked out. Back here in the back of my store, I've got a storeroom, and it's filled with guilt and remorse associated with the people I've hurt in the past. We're not drunken bums. We got a conscience. The guilt and remorse just literally eats us up. So if I want God to direct my thinking, I'm going to have to do something about the removal of these things before God's thinking can enter. He gave us self-will. And he said, I love you enough that I'll let you live on self-will till you destroy yourself. And he said, if you ever want to come back in the garden, and if you ever want me to take care of you again, then you have to give back to me what I gave to you, which is self-will. He said, I'll never take it away from you. And we cannot give it back until we clean it up. And it's just that simple. Now, my book is getting ready to show me how to get rid of these resentments, how to get rid of these fears, how to get rid of this guilt and remorse. It's going to show me a way to look at them honestly and see the truth behind them. And the greatest thing it's going to show me is how to keep them from coming back in the future. And when they're gone, then God's thinking can enter. But until they're gone, God is blocked out and will stay restless and irritable and discontented.
filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse, madder in hell and scared to death. And under those conditions, sooner or later, we go back to drinking. And this is such a simple little process that it just literally blows our mind every time we look at it. For years, we complicated the hell out of it. And there's really nothing here to complicate us. Listen to what he says. We did exactly the same thing with our lives. In other words, we're going to do the same thing he told us to do in the business inventory in our lives. We took stock honestly, truthfully, morally. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways as what had defeated us, we considered its common manifestations. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease, for we've been not only mentally and physically ill, we've been spiritually sick. When a spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. Now, before we set them on paper, let's look at the word resentments just a minute. Make sure we all understand it the way the writer understood it. The word resentment comes from two old words. First is R-E. Anytime you see R-E in front of another word, it means to redo or to do again. Replay, repaint, redo, so on and so forth. The last part of this word, sentiment, comes from an old word called centiri, which means to feel. So the word resentment means to re-feel, or to feel over again. Okay, we're going through life. And as we go through life, somebody who is sick in self does something to us to threaten one of our basic instincts of life. Maybe they put me down in the eyes of others and threaten my self-esteem. Maybe they rip off my money. Maybe they threaten my sex life. Now, when they do that, that's not a resentment. That is a wrong on their part for doing so. It doesn't become a resentment until I go off in the next room or I go clear across town and sit down in my easy chair that evening, and I replay that thing in my mind. Now, when they did it to me, it hurt. And they hurt me by doing so. But when I sit down in my easy chair and replay that thing in my mind, I hurt myself the second time. And the stupidity in it now is they're not even in the room. They're on the other side of town. And I replay it and feel the pain the second time. And then I replay it again and feel the pain the third time. And I find out that I'm not always honest with myself when I do this. Because every time I play that thing over, I make what they did just a little bit worse. And I make what I did just a little bit less 
and I make the pain just a little bit deeper, and let me play it over enough times I can say to myself, well, hell, I just stand there doing nothing. And they come along and did it to me, and it's all their fault. <laughs> kind of like football. I went up there at lunchtime and turned on the TV and was watching Ohio State and Michigan play. And one of those Ohio State receivers caught a pass that the quarterback threw to him way up in the air. He had to jump up to get it. They do that on purpose, you know, to keep the other guys from catching it. But the opposing team, they've learned the time to hit that receiver is just when that ball reaches his hands. And if they can hit him up in the air and knock him loose from that ball, then it's an incomplete pass. And they hit this old boy. He was about three feet off the ground. And they just turned him upside down. And he come down on his head. And one arm went this way and a leg went that way. And he was really, really hurt. And you could tell that he was hurt laying there on the ground. Now, the receiver, or the guy up in the booth, the announcer, he's got a resentment machine up there. Because after a while, he said, let's look at that again. And we looked at it again, and man, it was in slow motion and living color. Looked twice as bad as it did before. You could really see the expression of pain on his face. Now, the ball game is going on. This guy was hurt, but that didn't stop the game. They run out there, and, and if he hadn't hurt too bad, they'll pump a little air at him and get him up, start the game. Or if he's hurt too bad, they'll drag him off to the side and put somebody in his place. This guy, they drug him off and put somebody in his place, and the ball game is going on, just like the game of life goes on. But the announcer, after a while, he said, let's look at that again. Ten minutes later, this announcer sitting over here bouncing this guy up and down, up and down, up and down. Off, and that's just what a resentment does. You know, we alcoholics have got in our minds up here a little resentment replay machine. I guess Alamans do too, but I know we alcoholics do. And we got up in the morning and we clean the lens on it. We want to, we don't want to miss anything. We want to. We shine it on the world all day long with a clean set of lens so we can record everything that they do to us that day that is bad. We don't want to record none of that good junk. We record nothing but bad stuff. Go home in the evening, sit down in our, even, in our easy chair, play it over our head, make ourselves sick, and blame others for doing so. There's some days, though, that we have a bad day. There's days they won't do anything bad to us. That's a bad day for an alcoholic. That's a bad day for an alcoholic. Because we're shining around the world and we're waiting to record and they don't do anything that we can record. And that's a bad day for one of us. You know what we record those days? By God, we record what they're thinking. That's what we do, right? Is there any way that God could enter a mind filled with that kind of crap? Absolutely not. A bad thing about a resentment, if you throw it out there long enough, 
after a while, it's going to turn around and come right back at you. And when it comes back at you, it comes back as self-resentment. When we begin to resent ourselves for being in a position for them to do those things to us, and we can't stand self-resentment, and after a while, self-resentment turns into self-pity. And that's the sickest, sickest feeling that a human being can have. And we alcoholics love self-pity. My God, we love to get up in the morning and put it on as a cloak of dignity. And we go out the door and we say, here I come, you know, world. I know you're just waiting out there to get me all day long. If you don't think we love self-pity, you try to feel sorry for an alcoholic. He'll tell you in a hurry, don't you feel sorry for me? That's my damn job. Don't you mess with that. <laughs> so if I want God to direct that part of my thinking, apparently I'm going to have to do something about these resentments and get them out of my head because whoever or whatever I'm resenting, they are controlling my thinking. When I'm resenting them, they're controlling the way I think. And if they're controlling the way I think, then God can't, and it's just that simple. Let's look at them for just a few minutes. There's only one thing wrong with this illustration on page 65. It's already filled out. And we're not quite sure how Bill filled it out. So if you were like me, you'd look down with this and have a, a blank sheet and resemble that, the cause, and what part of self was affected. And we'd look at that first column and put down the name Mr. Brown and then we'd change our mind and go to the cause and write down why we're upset with Mr. Brown and then why part of self was affected. Well, I don't know. So I just skip over that. Change my mind and come back to the second column and Mrs. Jones and why I'm upset with Mrs. Jones and what part of self was affected. I don't know. So I leave that blank. After a while, if you're like me, your mind goes tilt and I say to myself, Oh heck, or worse that effect. They don't want this anyhow. What they want is all my life story. So I just fold that up and move on over to write my all my life story. But we think, after study and long time study, that these columns will be built out one column at a time from top to bottom, while our minds are on one thing and one thing only. Who we resent for that top to bottom, leaving that little space. When we get through with that, we go to the second column. What are we upset about? The cause. You notice that they're only using four or five little words to describe the cause. No long dissertation about that. And then the third column, what part of self was affected? Well, we've gone to the 12 and 12. We've got a working knowledge of these words. Now we know what part of self was affected. We can then can fill it out in the third column. One column at a time from top to bottom. That's the secret. So to avoid any confusion, we, we made, made up a little inventory sheet called a review of resentments. And we want to stress this is not anything new. We're not trying to bring another inventory into AA. You know, this is nothing in the world but page 65 in the blank form. The last two columns, just disregard them for the time being. We're going to use them in a couple of pages later. We'll look at the first three columns. Column one, I'm resentful at. Column two is the cause. Column three affects mine. Page 65 in the blank form. Now let's see if we can't see the directions. 
on how to fill these things out. It says, in dealing with resentment, we set them on paper. Well, we've got our paper now. We're ready to go. Now, here comes the first instruction. We listed people, institution, or principles whom we're angry, period. We stop right there, going from top to bottom, one name, one institution at a time, leaving that little space in between it. We write them down. Well, we got one thing and one thing only on our mind. Let's go from top to bottom, making a list of those resentments, leaving a little space between each name, as the example does here on page 65. I've never known an alcoholic yet that did not know just exactly who and what by God we're mad at. We spend thousands of hours sitting around in bars talking about it. All we have to do is take it out of her head, put them down on a sheet of paper. They came to me and they said, make a list of your resentments. And I said, I don't have any. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, surely you do. Maybe you don't understand what a resentment is. And they explained it to me. And I said, oh, yeah, i got a couple of those. They said, get them down on paper. And I took a sheet of paper and I listed about eight names on that sheet of paper. And I got another sheet of paper and listed about eight names. Another sheet and listed about eight names. Another sheet and listed about eight names. I got somewhere up around 162. And I said, man, you're madder in hell at everything. I did not know that. You can only see one resentment at a time in your head. And I don't think any of us will realize how many resentments we really do have, how much they control and dominate our thinking until we get them all down on a sheet on sheets of paper and see them in their entirety. Now we've made decision to let God direct our thinking. If we've got that many resentments, then God can't. And it's just that simple. So I learned something very valuable just by filling out column one. Bill's example. In first column, he put Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, my employer, and my wife. He probably had more resentments. I just assume he didn't want to use any more space in the big book. But that is an example of how we fill out column one. Now let's look at the second instruction. We asked ourselves why we were angry, period. We stop right there. We go beside each name now. It's in the second column. Simplicity is the key. Four or five little words to describe the cause as to why we're angry. And we all know why we're angry. For instance, he's mad at Mr. Brown. Why? His attention to my wife. Told my wife of my mistress. Brown may get my job at the office. Now, I don't even know, Mr. Brown. I'm getting upset with him myself. It met Miss Jones. Why? Well, she's a nut. Come on up here. about. She snubbed me. She committed her husband for drinking. He's my friend, and she's a gossip. Put my best drinking buddy in a nut house of what she did, and then telling everybody about it. He's upset with his his employer. Why? He's unreasonable and unjust and overbearing. Probably wanted to know, by the way, where were you all day yesterday in there? He threatens to fire me for my drinking and padding my expense account. Very narrow-minded individual, isn't he? 
Now, he's really upset with his wife. Why? Well, she misunderstands and nags, and she likes old Brown, and she wants the house put in her name. You tie all that together, wanting her house put in her name and liking old Mr. Brown, it's time to get upset pretty quickly. But simplicity is the key in the second column. Four or five words to describe the cause. If we know who we're mad at in column one, did we know why we're mad at them for column two? And we just use a few little words to put down the cause of the resentment. As I finished up column two, I learned something else that's become very valuable to me. I began to realize it's really not them I'm mad at. It's what they've done to me that's got me mad. I could take Mr. Brown out of here and put Mr. Green in. I'd be just as mad at Green as I am Brown if Green did the same thing. Take Mrs. Jones out and put Mrs. Smith in. I begin to realize it's not the people that's got me upset. It's what they've done to me that's got me upset. And the reason that's valuable is I'm getting ready to start out on a lifetime-changing process. And I'm going to try to develop the best possible relationship that I can with the world and everybody in it so I can have maximum peace of mind and serenity. Part of that relationship later on is I'm going to have to make amends to those. I'm going to have to ask people to forgive me for what I've done to them. By the same token, I'm going to have to start forgiving people for what they've done to me. And the forgiving process can start right here in this column, too, when I begin to get names out of the way and concentrate on what they did, not who they are. Very valuable information. Let's look at the third instruction. In most cases, it's found that our self-esteem, here's these words we talked about earlier, and what part of self was affected. In most cases, it's found that our self-esteem our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened, so we were sore, we were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal sex relations which had been interfered with? We were usually as definite as this example. And again, not having any working knowledge of the basic instincts of life, I just couldn't do the third the third column. But after going to the 12 and 12 and looking up some of these words, finding out about the basic instincts of life, then I have a working knowledge of these words, and then I can put them down on the third column. Very, very simple. The only way that I can get upset with you or with an institution is if you threaten my basic instincts of life in some way. If you threaten my social instinct, it upsets me. If you threaten my security instinct in any way, it upsets me. If you threaten my sex life in any way, it upsets me. So if I'm upset with you, at least one of those basic instincts is going to be affected. In many cases, all three of them. But at least one if I'm upset with you. And I think as you fill out the third column... You're gonna, you're gonna see a certain pattern start developing. You're gonna see that you continually are writing down self-esteem, 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 self-esteem. And it begins to become clear that self-esteem is a real problem with you. Another person might be writing down security, 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 security. 
and they can see that security is a real problem with them. Another person, it might be sex, 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 and sex, and they can see that sex is a real problem. It's going to be a combination of all three, but at least one of those basic instincts is going to stand out for every individual that fills out this third column. And we can begin to see the part of self that we really got a problem with. In filling out the third column, I learned another piece of information, which has turned out to be one of the most valuable things I ever learned. For the first time, as I filled out the third column, I began to see where anger comes from. I've always had a problem with anger. And I've always acted and reacted in anger and hurt other people. And I'd be ashamed of it, and I'd say, I'll not do that again, and I'll turn right around and get angry and do it all over again. You can't do anything about a problem till you understand the problem. And I never knew where anger came from. I thought it was just one of those feelings that flitted into your mind. You could do nothing about it. But today I realize it comes from a threat to one of these basic instincts of life. That's what causes me to get angry. And it depends upon my reaction to that threat that determines whether I'm going to be angry or not. You know, if my relationship with God is right, and my instincts are under control at the level God intends, you can say and do about anything you want to to me, and it's not going to bother me at all. But if my instincts are not under control, and my relationship with God's not right about anything you say or do to me creates anger. I'll give you a good example. I'm, I'm married to a, a real black belt, Al-Anon. 38 years in the Al-Anon program. She got a, she got a Al-Anon belt buckle about that big around, you know. Yeah. Great program. I, I love her deeply. I love her deeply. But Al-Anons get sick in self once in a while, too. Now, I know that they don't like to admit they do, but they do. And once in a while, she'll be a little sick in self. And she'll say or do something to me that threatens one of my basic instincts of life. And when she does, it hurts. And I found that when that happens, one or two things are going to take place. If my instincts are under control, my relationship with God's right, I'm able to say, well, the poor old thing, <laughs> they're, they're sick just like we are, and they can't help it any more than we can, and it'll just slide off of my back, and the rest of the day is okay. Now, 30 days from now, the same lady does the same thing. Only this time, my relationship with God's not quite right. My instincts are not necessarily under control, and I react with anger. And I romp and I stomp and I raise hell with Barbara and everybody around me all day long. The same lady did the same thing, but I choose to react to it in an entirely different manner based upon my relationship with God and whether my instincts are under control. Thank God I've learned that. Because you see, I can't do anything about Barbara. I can't do anything about any other human being on earth. But with God's help, I can do something about my reaction to it. And if I don't have to get angry, then I'm in much less chance of getting drunk. Remember, resentment is the number one offender 
It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. I see more people get drunk in AA over anger than I do anything else. Thank God I've learned how to handle some of that stuff. Now, we filled out these three columns. We've learned three things. Number one, column one, how we resentful we really are. We made a decision to let God direct our thinking. He can't because of the resentments. Column two, it's not them I resent. It's what they've done to me. Column three, it's not even what they've done to me. It's how I have chosen to react to it based on my own basic instincts of life. Very valuable information. You want to put... Uh, yeah, if you want to realize and look at this in this manner, that these this inventory is just little notes to yourself to talk about them in step five. That's all. Very, very, very simple. Just little notes to yourself. Okay, we'll, we're going to put a couple of names up here, just an example. We're going to run for about maybe ten more minutes, and then we'll quit for the day. Wish we had more time, but we don't. They're going to have a... Big dinner in here this evening. They're going to have to get this thing ready. Wish they had a dinner for us, but they're not. <laughs> We're going to take a couple of names from our inventories and put them on here. Just a couple of them. Uh, the first, the first name on my, uh, on my resentment sheet was this lady named Barbara. You know, some, uh, some 36, 37, 38 years ago, I hated this woman with a purple passion. If there was any way I could have killed her and got by with it, I believe I would have done it. You know, I used to lay awake at night and fantasize. Now, tomorrow morning on her way to work, and I always believed in her being self-supporting through her own contributions, and I'd think now tomorrow morning on her way to work, she's going to get run over by a big semi-truck. And it's not going to be just any semi-truck. It's going to be a very affluent trucking company. And they're going to kill her, and then I'm going to sue them. And I'm going to get rid of her and get a couple million dollars out of this deal at the same time. You Alanons are not the only ones that fantasize. We alcoholics did it too. Second name on my sheet was the Internal Revenue Service. Now, if you wanted to hear a guy come unglued, you just mention their name in my presence. And I immediately begin to jump up and down, frothing at the mouth, and just threw an absolute fit. God, I hated those people. Joe, who was the first one on your sheet? Name was Rose. Now, who was Rose? Number, wife number one? Okay. Old Rose, wife number one, was Joe's first one. Okay, that's how easy it is now to fill out that first column. You, you don't have to be highly educated to do that. And if you can't write, you feed the names to somebody else and have them write them down. You know, very simple. Column two. Why Samoa uh, so upset with Barbara? Well, this lady had the audacity to file for divorce Three times the last year before she went to Al-Anon, she's spending more money on lawyers 
and I'm spending on booze and everything that goes with it. And I really had it in for her other reasons too, but that was the main one. Why am I so upset with the Internal Revenue Service? Well, they're trying to put me in jail. That's why. Joe, how come you're so upset with Rose? And the affair with another man. That's how simple column two is. Column three. Which part of self is affected? Barbara filing for divorce three times within one year. Is that a threat to my self-esteem? Oh, yeah. What are the neighbors going to think about me now? This woman filed for divorce three times, and I'm still letting her live in the same house I'm living in. What are they going to think about me now? Threat to my personal relationships? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's going to take the kids, and I probably won't get to see them anymore. Is it a threat to my security? Oh, yeah. By the time she and the lawyers get through with it, they'll have it all. What a little bit we got left. Is it a threat to my sex life? She probably won't let me have any after we get a divorce. I had a hard enough time getting her to give me some before we got married. I don't think she will after we get a divorce. (laughs) Just wipe me out right across the board. Internal Revenue Service trying to put me in jail. Is that a threat to my self-esteem? You bet you what will people think about me now. Threat to my personal relationships? Oh, yeah, I'm going to be locked up. Can't have any relationship with my wife and my kids. Threat to my security? Oh, yeah, by the time they're through with their fines and everything, they'll have it all. Threat to my sex life? Well, (laughs) (laughs) the kind I'd like to have, yeah, they're amazing. There may be some in there I don't want, but. <laughs> Rose having an affair with another man. Is that a threat to Joe's self-esteem? Oh, yeah. One of the neighbors going, not even man enough to keep his own wife at home. Is that his personal relationship? I never look to see what he's put up there. I'm always afraid to. Is it a threat to his security? Sure it is. He's going to have to go to work now. That woman's been supporting him for the last 10 years. He got to get a job now. Threat to his sex life? Why, sure it is. This wipes him out right across the board. That's how simple this thing is now. And it's just not difficult to do that. Okay, let's go back now to the bottom of page 65. Joe, you want anything you want on there? Oh, let's forget that last name. It's... <laughs> he can't put too much up there. Uh, I've just known him for 30 years. 
if he starts snitching on me, I'll snitch on him too. I don't know that. Bottom of page 65. We went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness honesty. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. Well, the first thing apparent was this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as Moses have ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us, and then we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse, and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. Now, it's plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit this, that we squander the hours which might have been worthwhile. And I read that last statement, and I tried to look back in my life to see how much time I squandered in resentments. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I've got a good resentment churning around in my head, I'm pretty well paralyzed from doing anything worthwhile. And one of my favorite things I used to do when I was drinking was get up in the morning, have a drink of whiskey and a cup of coffee, and turn on my resentment replay machine and replay what she did to me yesterday, what he did to me last week, what that damn neighbor said to me 90 days ago, what that damn policeman did to me a year ago, what that damn boss did to me five years ago. And what this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy, and I loved every moment of it. It took me just about an hour to run through that tape. And when I get through that tape, I'd have another drink of whiskey and another cup of coffee, and then I would turn on my get-even machine. By God, the next time she does that, I'll do this and she'll do that and I'll say this and walk over. I'm going to put it on her. They're not going to treat me that way. Loved every moment of it. Took at least an hour to run through the get-even tape. I have spent literally thousands and thousands and thousands of hours in resentments. And as I look at them, I can't see where they ever did me any good whatsoever. Never made me any money. Never made me feel better, just made me feel worse. Never straightened up a relationship with another human being. It just made them worse and worse and worse and worse. And as far as I can tell, it was absolute wasted time. Now, I've reached a point in my life where I don't have a hell of a lot of time left. And I love to be sober and peaceful and happy and free. I enjoy every moment of my life. And what little time I've got left... I do not intend to waste any more of it in resentments because they absolutely block me off from God, from myself, and from my fellow human being. And they make me sick, and I don't want to be sick anymore. So I don't have to do that anymore. I found a way not to have to do that anymore. The wasting of the time is a bad thing, but that's not the worst thing. Here's the worst thing about a resentment. But with the alcoholics who hope is the maintenance and, and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. For when harboring such feelings, we shed ourselves off in the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns when we drink again. And with us, to drink is to die. There's the worst thing wrong with the resentment. 
<clears throat> we're harboring a resentment in our head. We're blocked off from God. And blocked off from God, we don't feel good. And we're going to feel bad just so long. And we're going to start thinking about taking a drink in order to feel better. Next thing you know, we become insane. And we end up drunk all over again. And for us to drink is to die. That's the worst thing about resentments. I see more people get drunk over resentments and anger than anything else in AA. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. We turned back to the list, for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. Always before, I looked at it to see what those suckers had done to me. Today, I look at it to see what their resentment is going to do to me. And if it's going to get me drunk, then I'm looking at it from an entirely different angle. We begin to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing as others fancied or real had power to actually kill. And I read that and I said, Charlie, Charlie, how stupid can you be? All my life, I've been proud of the fact that I stand on my own two feet. Nobody tells me what to do. I don't need your advice. Thank you. And I suddenly realized that other people have controlled and dominated my thinking as far back as I can remember, through my resentments toward them. And if they control and dominate my thinking, they control and dominate my actions, they control and dominate my life, and I've given them the power to actually kill me. And then I said, man, you really are stupid. Because some of these people have been dead and buried in the graveyard for years. And reaching out from the grave and had me but a yang-yang as far back as I can remember. And when I saw that, I said, to hell with those people. I'm not going to let those people live in my head rent-free any longer. I made a decision to let God direct my thinking. And if they direct my thinking, alive or dead, God can't, and it's just that simple. And you know, an amazing thing happened to me. You know, we alcoholics fancy ourselves as reasonably intelligent people. And I think we are. I don't think we're smarter than others, but we're reasonably intelligent people. And we don't like to look stupid. And we see the stupidity of letting other people control us and dominate us through our resentments toward them. That looks so stupid that about 95% of those resentments are going to automatically start disappearing because they look so dumb. Oh, they look good in your head. But you get them down on paper and you see what they're doing to you. They look double, double dumb on paper. And about 95% of my resentments begin to disappear. Now, we're going to have to quit. Uh, we're going to have three or four or five resentments that don't disappear because they look so dumb. And tomorrow morning we'll talk about how to get rid of them. And then we're going to talk about how to really see the truth behind those resentments and where they actually actually do come from. I think it would be very revealing to you. 
tomorrow morning. That's all we got for today. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Keith. My name is Joan. I'm an alcoholic. And it's truly by God's grace and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous I find in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm sober today. And for that, I'm very, very thankful. And so for a lot of other people. Especially Phyllis. Especially my wife, Phyllis. And I've been sober since November 3rd, 1973. And for that, I'm truly thankful. I'd like to read the preamble, please. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We're self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy. Neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. And uh, it's been a great weekend so far. You guys have really made it that way, and we thank you for that. I want to tell you a little story this morning. It goes along with what we're doing right now, the inventory. And it's a story about these three boys, about like Keith and Charlie and I. They were about 22, 23 years old, and they were in the sixth grade. <clears throat> you have to kind of get the picture here. And the teacher warned them, I mean, the principal warned them out of the sixth grade desperately. So he called him in the office one day and said, boys, I'm going to ask you all a question. If you get to answer these questions correctly, you move on to the seventh grade. So they asked Keith, said, Keith, what is it that women have two of that men like to get their hands on? And he thought for a long time and finally he said, well, women have two hands. Men like to hold women's hands. He said, that's good, Keith. You're in the seventh grade. He looked at Charlie and said, now, Charlie, what is it that men have one of that women like to get their hands on? And he thought for a long time, and finally he said, well, men have one billfold. Women like to get their hands on a man's billfold. He said, that's good, Charlie. You can go to the seventh grade. He looked at me, and he said, now, Joe, I'm going to ask you a simple question. I said, God, I hope so. I missed those first two. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind, isn't it? Are you through? I'm finished. All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Charlie Carman. I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic. Because I'm a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and by the grace of the power that I found through the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found necessary to take a drink for 13,136 days today, one day at a time. And this I'm very, very grateful. You are. You guys really look good this morning. You really do. Not a resentment left in the whole bunch. You really work hard. How many of you went back where you were staying last night and worked on at least one resentment? Could you see your hands? Yeah, a lot of you did. Great. How many of you got rid of at least one resentment? Could I see your hand? Yeah. How many of you did we give a new resentment to yesterday? <laughs> Pray for us. We need the prayers and you need to practice. We always like to start Sunday morning off with a little spiritual story. And I've got one that I just love to share with other people. And this was about a new young priest. And he was so nervous during his first Mass, he could barely speak. 
And before his second week in the pulpit, he asked the Monsignor what he could do to relax himself. And the Monsignor said it might help if you would put some vodka in the water glass. And after a few sips, everything would be fine. Well, the next Sunday, the new young priest put the suggestion into practice, and he was able to talk up a storm, and he felt great. Upon returning to the rectory, he found a note from the Monsignor which said, I suggest the following. Number one, next time, sip at the water rather than gulp at it. Number two, there are ten commandments, not twelve. Number three, there are twelve disciples, not ten. Number four, David slew Goliath. He didn't kick the shit out of him. Number five, we do not refer to our Savior Jesus Christ and his apostles as J.C. and the boys. Number six, next week, there's a taffy pulling contest at St. Peter's, not a... Peter pulling contest at St. Taffy's. Number seven, we do not recur, refer to the cross as the big T. And number eight, last but not least, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are not referred to as Big Daddy Jr. and the Spook. <laughs> That's probably about as spiritual as we'll get this morning, too. Okay, we uh we finished up yesterday evening. We were in the process of talking uh about our inventory process. Uh Joe, let's put it on the screen for just a moment or we might get that fellow right there just to turn that switch on for us. Would you do that? That little red switch up there on the front of it. Yeah. Yeah, okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we uh, we made our list of resentments, and we found out uh, how many resentments we really did have. Most of us didn't think we had very many, and we start putting them all down on paper for the first time. We realize how many resentments we really do have. And if we've got that many resentments, then God can't direct our thinking because the resentments direct our thinking. Column two, we put down the cause of the resentment. And as we filled out that second column, we begin to realize it's not really them we're mad at. It's what they've done that's got us upset and begins to get kind of names out of the picture. And we start centering in on what they did to us rather than who they are. Column three, we put down the part of self that was affected. And we found that in most cases, we'd be one part of self is really going to stand out as we fill out that third column. Uh, one person may be writing in self-esteem all the time. Another one may be security. Another one, it may be sex. With most of us, it'll be a combination of all three. But at least one part of self's going to stand out and show us the part of self we're having a real problem with. Column three, we also found out the source of our anger. We found that we cannot get upset unless somebody threatens one of the basic instincts of life. And if they threaten our social instinct, security instinct, or sex instinct in any way, then we usually react with anger and resentment, etc. And we never could do anything about anger because we didn't know where it came from. But now that we know it comes from a threat to one of the basic instincts of life, 
Then with God's help, maybe we don't have to react with anger all the time. And we're in much less chance of getting drunk than we were before we started this thing. We also found in the book that the resentments are an absolute waste of time. Because when they're churning around in our head, we're pretty well paralyzed from doing anything worthwhile. All we want to do is just sit there and turn that resentment over and over and over and over. Replaying what they did to us and replaying how we're going to get even with them and how we're going to show them and etc. And for most of us, we've wasted thousands and thousands of hours in resentments and really can't see whether they did us any good at all. So that was a bad thing, the absolute waste of time. But we also found that wasn't the worst thing. The worst thing is that a resentment blocks us off from the sunlight of the Spirit. And blocked off from God, we don't feel good. And if we don't feel good, then sooner or later we start thinking about taking a drink. Next thing you know, we become insane. And we take a drink and we trigger the allergy and we end up drunk over and over and over again. Resentments are the number one offender. We turn back to that list because it held the key to the, to the future. And for the first time, we begin to realize that other people have really controlled and dominated our thinking for us as far back as we can remember. And we always thought that we had it, and nobody told us what to do, and we didn't need anybody's advice. But we begin to realize that other people, through our resentments toward them, have actually controlled and dominated our thinking for years and years and years. With that came the realization that some of these people are already dead and buried in the graveyard and reaching out from the grave and had us by the yang-yang as far back as we can remember. And we saw that that began to look pretty stupid, pretty stupid. And we fancy ourselves as reasonably intelligent people. We don't like to look stupid. And we see the stupidity behind these resentments. We see that it's letting other people control us and dominate our lives for us, it begins to look so dumb that those resentments that did look awful good in our head now begin to look pretty stupid on paper. And we don't like to look dumb, we don't like to look stupid. So about 95% of those resentments automatically begin to disappear when we see the stupidity behind them. But there are also going to be probably three or four or five resentments that have embedded, been embedded in our minds so long and so deeply that just seeing the stupidity behind them, they'll get rid of them. And book recognizes now in every action step that self cannot overcome self, that in every action step we're going to have to have God's help. So we now come to the first prayer in the big book on step four. We hear always about the step three prayers, the step seven prayers. We never hear about the step four prayers. So let's look and see how we can get rid of those that are so deeply embedded that they don't automatically leave when we see their stupidity behind them. Joe? You said this was our course. We realized that the people who had wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. And we're at the bottom of page 66. <laughs> And though they did not, though we did not like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, they like ourselves were sick too. Here's the first part of the prayer. We ask God to help us to show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. 
See, I used to lay awake nights like most people thinking about these people and how I was going to get even with them and how I could get even with them. Never could get even with them. But I finally found out how you get even with people. The way you get even with people is you pray for them. You see? And when you pray for them, then you're even. And I, I did that. But I had some deep-seated resentments, too, that I that didn't quite work like this. And I was in Apache, Oklahoma one time. I was sober about, about four or five months. And I met this lady named Alabama Carruthers. Some of you all may have heard of Alabama. She's dead now, bless her heart. But she loved Alcoholics Anonymous, and she loved this program dearly. And she was speaking there that night. And she said a couple of things that kind of went off like a thunderbolt in my head. One of them said she had a soul sickness. And boy, soul sickness. Now that's what I, I finally heard a word I could put with the feeling that I had in the last days of my drinking, a soul sickness. And then she said another thing. She said, I've got peace of mind tonight. Peace of mind. God, I, I thought to myself, how long has it been since I've had peace of mind? Could not remember. And after the meeting was over with, we were sitting around this hotel and my little friend George was laid over in her lap asleep. <laughs> He'd sleep in your lap too if he got his head. But uh, that, that's George. And about 3 o'clock in the morning, I said, Alabama, you said you had peace of mind tonight. How did you get peace of mind? And she said, well, Joe, tell me what's going on in your mind. Hmm. See, I never told anybody that. Because I think they would think I was crazy if they knew what was going on in my mind. And I told them about my old rose there. And uh when I drank back in those days, I drank and I go places. And I didn't come home right away either. Uh, sometimes I'd be gone overnight or two or three days or a week or a month or whatever. And I'd come home just like I just went out to the store to get a loaf of bread. You know, thought more, no more of it than that. But this one time I'd been gone about three months and I was sitting at the bar one night called the Zebra Lounge. It's a lovely place. And, uh, still smell it today. I almost smell it now. But, uh, I was sitting on the bar stool and I got to thinking. Now you know either drink or think, but don't get the two of them mixed up. I got to thinking, well, old Rose hadn't seen me in about three months. I bet she's lonely. Wouldn't you be if you hadn't seen me in about three months? And I said, I think I'll go home and visit. Anybody know what I mean by visit? Okay. So I'm going to go home and visit. So I went over to my house and I banged on the door and she kind of peeked out the door a little bit. And I just broke right in there is what I did and got in my living room. And there's an old boy in my recliner watching my TV in my house with my wife. And I'm making payments on all that. But what are you going to do, Jim? <laughs> I did. I jumped on that old boy and he liked to beat me to death in my own living room floor. Put me out in the yard and told me not to ever come back. <laughs> Boy, you think I didn't live on that one for a long time. And I told Alabama about that. Told her how my mind used to race all the time thinking about that situation. How can how can we get even with those people? And she said, well, Joe, you're just full of resentments. And I said, well, what is a resentment? She said resentments are old angers and old hurts that are refelt over and over and over again. And all that anger you intend to use on them, you're turning it on yourself. You're making yourself sick and blaming it on them. And uh, she had to explain that to me several times before I finally got it. 
And I said, well, is there any solution for this? What can I do about this? Now, you have to know Alabama. She had a purse about that big and about that tall. And she began to dig down in that purse. You know how they are. And she was looking for something. She finally found this book down there. And she pulled it out. And she said, Joe, on page 551 of this book, in the Freedom from Bondage section, is a story of a lady who had some deep-seated resentments like you do. If you'll read and do what she said and did, maybe it would help you. She said it had helped her, maybe it would help me. So she showed me on page 551 in the uh, third paragraph. This lady said, I've had many spiritual experiences since I've been in the program. Many that I didn't recognize right away, for I'm slow to learn. They take many guises. But one was so outstanding that I like to pass it on whenever I can, and I hope it would help someone else as it helped me. As I said earlier, self-pity resentment were my constant companions, and my inventory began to look like a 33-year diary, for I seemed to have a resentment against everybody I'd ever known. All but one responded to the treatment suggested in the steps immediately, but this one posed surprise, and it was against my mother, and was 25 years old. I had fed it, fanned it, and nurtured it as one might a delicate child, and had become as much a part of me as my breathing. It had provided me with my excuses for my lack of education, my marital failures, personal failures, inadequacies, and, of course, my alcoholism. And though I really thought I'd been willing to part with it now, I knew I was reluctant to let it go. If it did all that thing for me, I'd be reluctant to let it go, too. (laughs) But one morning, however, I realized I had to get rid of it before my reprieve was running out. And if I didn't get rid of it, I was going to get drunk, and I didn't want to get drunk anymore. In my prayers that morning, I asked God to point out to me some way to be free of this resentment. During the day, a friend of mine brought me some magazines to take to a hospital group I was interested in. And I looked through them, and a banner across the front of one featured an article by a prominent clergyman in which I caught the word resentment. Now, he said, in effect, and here it is, if you have resentment you want to be free of, if you will pray for the personal thing that you resent, you will be free. If you will ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. As for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you really don't want it for them and your prayers are only words and you don't mean it, go ahead and do it anyway. Do it every day for two weeks, and you'll find you've come to mean it and want it for them. And you'll realize that where you used to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred, you now feel compassion, understanding, and love. Well, I went home after that conference and got in bed that night. My mind started racing again. And I remembered, I said, I think I'll pray for those people. And I prayed for them, added some names to the list. Next morning, I got up and I said, I think I'll pray for those people. And I prayed for them and some other people. And as the days went by, it seemed like I was in constant prayer for weeks, two or three weeks or four, I don't know, all all day long. But I do know this one morning at the corner of 31st and Lewis in Tulsa, Oklahoma, after one of our cold winters, and I guess it was in early April, uh, I got stuck in a stoplight. And I looked over there at this beautiful home sitting on the corner. Now, this was just the length of a stoplight. I noticed those tulips were red and yellow, full bloom. They were just gorgeous. The grass was green, and the birds were singing, and the trees were blooming out. And so, boy, I said to myself, it's a beautiful morning, isn't it? Absolutely a beautiful morning. And then I said to myself, well, Joe, how long has it been since you've seen a morning like this? I could not remember. I could not remember. See, I've been looking in black and white for so long. There was no color in my life. But that morning, everything was vivid. 
And I knew that morning was the morning that this program would work for me. You see, I prayed for those people. They didn't change, but I did. And my feelings toward them did. And then I realized I wasn't laying awake nights thinking about them either. You see, we were even. I was even with them because I prayed for them. And this book talks about being cut off in the sunlight of the Spirit. I know what that means. I mean, I really do know what that means. And I don't ever want to go back there again. Ever. Thank God for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you've got a resentment that you don't want to get rid of, for God's sake, don't pray about it. Because if you do, it's probably going to disappear. You know, I had one of those against a guy and another one of those that I would gladly have killed him if I could get by with it. I got to that part of the recovery program and I told my sponsor, I said, uh, I said, I can't, I don't want to get, I can't get rid of this resentment. And he said, why? And I explained it to him and he said, Oh, Charlie said, you've got to get rid of that resentment that if you don't sooner or later, it's going to get you drunk. And in my usual smart mouth manner, I said, okay, how in the hell do I do that? And he took me to this page in, a, in the book that Joe just read. And he said, now go home and do what it says. And you'll be okay. You'll get rid of that thing. And I went home and got down on my knees, which again, I very seldom did in those days. And I said, God, I want you to give that son of a bitch everything he deserves. <laughs> And that's the only prayer I had for him that day. And the next day I prayed again, and the next day I prayed again, and three or four or five or six days later, I don't know how long, I found myself saying something I didn't intend to say. I found myself saying, God, give him in his life what I want in my own. Give him the same peace of mind and serenity and happiness that I seek for myself. And three or four or five or six or eight days later, I don't know when, one morning I woke up and that resentment was gone. Never, never to return. And the irony in the whole situation is it wasn't two months and this guy moved in as my next door neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) And we were allowed to visit back and forth again in each other's homes. And eventually we became good friends again. This thing really does work. I think the reason it works so good is prayer for the welfare, for the benefit of another human being is one of the great expressions of love that one human being can have for another. And love and hate can't exist on the same plane. One's going to have to replace the other. And as we as we pray for their prosperity and their welfare, do it every day for two weeks. If it don't work, do it two more weeks. And if that won't work, do it two more weeks. And eventually, eventually, those kind of resentments are going to disappear also. Now, just think, if 95% of the resentments disappear because they look so stupid, if the other 5% can be removed through prayer, then that means this display cases up here in my little store that were filled with resentments have now been emptied out. They've now been emptied out. The damaged and unsaleable goods called resentments are gone. And when that happens, there's another natural law that applies. And that law is that nature abhors a vacuum. No such thing as a vacuum or a void. There's always something rushing in to fill it up. If those resentments disappear, 
God's not going to leave another hole in my head. I got enough of those already. If they disappear, they're going to have to be replaced with something else. And the only thing that can possibly replace them will be the opposite of the resentment. And where my mind used to be filled with resentments, now then that part of it is filled with love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill toward my fellow man. You know, that's God's thinking. And I found out to my amazement that to get love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill, I didn't have to go to any other fellowships, and I didn't have to read any other books. If God dwells within me, and my book says that he does, then those things have always been a part of my makeup. I just never could use them before. In my chase for money, power, prestige, sex, all what I thought were the good things of life, the love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill had to be repressed to let me operate on the level I wanted to operate on. But now that the resentments are gone, they automatically come to the surface. The most amazing thing that I've ever seen actually takes place. A third of my mind now, I'm in much less chance of drinking. We don't have to wait till we get to the end of this thing to get something out of it. If resentments have been replaced by love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill, then I'm beginning to get a little peace of mind, a little serenity, and a little happiness all at the same time. You know, this thing really does work. It always amazes me when it does. Now, it would do no good, though, for me to get rid of those resentments if I didn't know how to keep them from coming back. Because the world's full of sick people. And they're going to do it to me again tomorrow. And if I'm not careful, I'll resent. And I can't have just one resentment. If I get one, if I don't do something about it, the next thing you know, I've got two. And then I've got four, and then I've got eight, and then I've got 16, and I'm a basket case all over again. So we need to do one more thing. Let's go to page 67. And now let's look at the last two columns on that inventory sheet. On page 67, the middle paragraph down the middle of the page, it says, referring to our list again. You see, this is why you've got to have a written inventory. This is the second time we've had to go back and refer to that list again. If you had a mental inventory, you would have lost it already. Referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done, we resolutely look for our own mistakes. Uh Uh-oh, (laughs) uh-oh. We've always looked to see what those suckers did to us. We've never looked to see about our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly, and were willing to set these matters straight. So I go back to the inventory sheet, and I look at column four. And if you'll notice, column four is headed up. What did I do? Putting out of mind the wrongs others had done, I resolutely looked for my own mistakes. 
What did I do, if anything, to set in motion trains of circumstances which in turn caused people or institutions to hurt me and eventually led to my resentment of them for doing so? So I went to that first name on my sheet, that lady named Barbara. And I said, okay, Charlie, now let's do what your book's telling you to do. You forget what Barbara did. You forget about her filing for divorce three times in that one year. What did you do, if anything, to set this thing in motion? And it took me about five seconds. And I said, if I hadn't been out there screwing around, I wouldn't have got caught. Joe calls that committing adultery. I just call it screwing around. I wouldn't have got caught, and she probably wouldn't have filed for divorce in the first place. Another five seconds. If I hadn't been sneaking around behind her back lying to her all the time, she probably wouldn't have filed for divorce in the first place. Another five seconds. If I hadn't been blowing all of our money on what I thought was important, paying no attention to what my wife and kids actually needed, she might not file for divorce in the first place. And for the first time, I began to realize why I loved resentments. You see, I can play a resentment over and over and over and over in my head. And every time I play it over and over in my head, I distort the picture just a little bit every time. And every time I distort the picture, I made what she did a little worse and what I did a little bit less. And let me play it over long enough, I'm finally able to transfer all blame to Barbara and make myself just as pure as the driven snow. You know, I don't think we alcoholics could live with ourselves when we're out there doing our thing if we didn't have the ability to transfer blame to others. The guilt and remorse eats us up bad enough. But if we had to actually see the truth behind the things that we're doing when we're out there drinking, you know, I don't think we could possibly stand it. So with these resentments, we can play them over and over and over and gradually, gradually transfer blame to others and never have to look at ourselves and go on and live the kind of life we're wanting to live. I said, my God, is there any more like this on here? I looked at the Internal Revenue Service. Hated those people with a purple passion. I said, now forget the fact they're trying to put you in jail. What did you do, if anything, to set this thing in motion? Very simple. If I hadn't cheated on my income tax, they wouldn't have been trying to put me in jail. And rather than admit that I'm a liar and a a thief and a cheat, I play that resentment over and over and over in my head, transfer all blame to them, make myself as pure as the driven snow. Joe with old Rose. Same kind of thing. Joe, what did you do, if anything, to set that little deal in motion? Committing adultery, he said. Did you do any lying to her? Yeah, lots of lying to her. (laughs) Did you hear what he said? 
always spending their money trying to impress people he didn't like in the first place. You know, typical alcoholic. <laughs> and what we do with those resentments, we play them over and over and over in our head, gradually transfer blame to others, make ourselves as pure as a driven snow, and then keep right on living the same kind of life we wanted to live. And we men go from woman to woman to woman. You ladies go from man to man to man. We go from job to job to job. We go from city to city to city and state to state to state, and it's always their damn fault. I think that fourth column is one of the most revealing things that any of us can do for ourselves, to look to see the part that we played in this thing. If we didn't play any part in it, if they did it to us and we didn't do anything to set it in motion in column four, we just put nothing. But in most cases, in my case, everyone, I didn't have a resentment that I had not done something to set that thing in motion, created a problem for them, then they retaliated against me. We will have Joe and Charlie part eight coming up sometime here in the near future. Just stay tuned for that. But um, as I mentioned on the front of this episode, both Joe and Charlie have gone to the Big meeting in the sky, um, but uh, hopefully one day we can all sit around a table with them, read through the big book, and tell them, uh, at least from my perspective, uh, how much they meant to me and my sobriety. Now, remember, we don't want you sharing your gossip, and we don't want you sharing your hairbrush or your toothbrush, but we would absolutely love for you to share this episode with another friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. So go ahead and pause your device, click that little share button and get it on over to them. And if you are tuning in for the first time and you're saying, hey, how do I get the first six parts of this? This was part seven. These guys are great. Well, you can go back in our catalog. We have one through six out there already. Or quite honestly, if you just do a search for Joe and Charlie, Big book. You're going to find them all over the internet, and uh, it would be worth a listen if you haven't caught the other episodes or their other uh, uh, information yet, and just starting from the beginning and just listening to them. That's how I did it. I, I, I had their tapes at the time, and I listened to them one by one. I got my little markers out. I got my pencils out, and I took notes in the big book, and uh, it, it, it was the basis uh, for my sobriety moving forward, and those guys are just absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. So, anyway, now on to a little bit of a listener feedback for Ewan's. Michael writes in, and Michael said, This is a snail mail update. And let, just in case you haven't heard me in the past, Michael is Mike, we call him actually. He actually monitors the uh, uh, P.O. box for Sober Speak in the Tempe, Arizona area. And that address is Sober Speak, 1962 East Apache Boulevard, P.O. Box 7925, Tempe, Arizona, 85281. So if you are inclined to read, excuse me, to, to write a letter as opposed to 
sending in an email or something like that, uh, feel more than free to go ahead and reach out to Mike. He would love to hear from you. And I am appreciative of him uh, monitoring that P.O. box. But anyway, he says, uh, this is the snail mail update as he puts it. He says, hello, John. It's been a few weeks since our last update, but rest assured... The snail mail department is moving along with us, good to hear, and becoming even more tech-savvy. He says, I have been communicating with a couple of guys directly on their tablets, and it does make corresponding faster. We have had another letter in the P.O. box, so a big shout-out to Mary Margaret in Dallas. So, Mary Margaret, if you were listening, uh, thanks for writing in. And And he says, she is being released soon and wanted to know how much, and wanted you to know how much the podcast has helped her with her recovery. Good to hear, Mary Margaret. As you know, I don't or don't respond to women in recovery, but she didn't. But she didn't express the need for correspondence. And finally, our friend Rusty wanted me to pass you along a message. Uh, and so the attached is a screenshot of the image he sent from his tablet. Until next time. Oh, and before I forget, I really enjoyed the Sober Speak Live event. Oh, good, Mike. That's, I'm so glad you were able to join us. I learned a lot about relationships and how to work on mine. Peace and blessings, Mike. Yeah, me too. Uh, so here is the, the uh, screenshot from Rusty in Abilene, Texas, uh, that he sent to Mike. And it says, uh, you read, I think he's talking about me, you read my snail mail letter back uh, in episode 322. The timeline was at one minute and 26 seconds. Today, I'd like to comment on episode 327, Gary K, touching on complacency in AA. That in-depth discussion was well received on my end. During mon- during Monday meetings at my group, the New Beginnings Group, I like to touch on a related subject called contentment in AA. Hmm. With abstinence from alcohol or substance comes sobriety. With long-term sobriety, we see the promises of AA and the fruits stemming therefrom. However, alkies lack contentment ever striving for more and more. I hear that. More is always the answer, right? I've been dating these four women and it's not working out. I think I'm going to start dating this fifth. More is always the answer. I get it there, Rusty. But anyway, he says, uh, oh gosh, I lost my track. That vicious path leads to discontentment and spiritual death. In the good book, the Lord Jesus warned for what uh, shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Well put. Mark eight thirty six. Perhaps he was speaking to our fellows alkies or revealing a common flaw inside all of us humans. We must be diligent, focused, he says, upon our daily programs. 
This must be and always remain priority numero uno. Hey, you know Spanglish too. When, <laughs> when we place our sights upon anything else, we will become complacent and then filled with discontentment. Nothing but the program of AA can sustain nor maintain uh, our required sobriety for we deal with alcohol cunning baffling powerful without help it is too much for us i've been incarcerated uh, inside this prison since uh, april 12th of 1996 society and the so-called in quotes free world unquote has drastically changed while i have been in here the past 28 years Working a program, uh, uh, prolonged sobriety, and the promises of AA occur even inside of this prison. Even though I may one day die in here, God be willing, one day at a time, I shall be clean and sober when I breathe my last breath. I am content with my realities. I am grateful for my sobriety day, which is March, March 13th of 1997, for I found the truth and the truth shall set, shall, shall, and the truth set me free indeed. And then he signs it, unity, service, recovery, Rusty R in Abilene, Texas. And uh, he says, P.S., do an interview. Please do an interview on living in reality in AA. Hmm, I'd have to think about that one, Rusty. Rusty, my friend, thank you for writing in. Um, that made my day. Uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you wrote in, and uh, I'm so glad that you make it your primary pur- purpose to carry the message of AA to those who still suffer. And God bless you, my friend. God bless you. And Mike, once again, thank you for uh, monitoring that P.O. box. Crystal DMs on the IG. And for those of you who are not sophisticated in the technical world like me, that means she direct messaged me on La Instagram. She says, hi, John, I'm Crystal from Sydney, Australia. Well, crikey, good to hear from you, Crystal. She says, I am 83 days sober and your podcast is my saving grace. I listen every day since finding since finding the podcast on Spotify. I've started at episode one and I'm up to episode number 50 with Doug S. Uh, I attend AA every day and it's my savior and highlight of my day. And I love how you say the podcast is our meeting between meetings. Keep up the fantastic work and then well, all kinds of emojis here. I think those are clapping hands, hearts, and then big hearts and face. I don't, I don't know exactly what that means, but it all looks very happy. Anyway, uh, she said, and then I, I said, thank you. Oh, I said, Doug S is quite a guy, uh, isn't he? And she said, yeah, I was laughing almost to tears. He's definitely one of my favorites so far. I can't wait to be listening to as many of your podcasts as I can during the days. And then I suggested that 
podcast, you go listen to Doug S. on episode number 297. I guess she'd have to get out of order there, skip from 50 or 51 up to 297, but she did. And she said, thanks, John. I listened to Doug S., episode number 297, and oh, he is amazing. I could listen to him talk for hours. He's definitely a personal favorite and such an inspirational guy. Well, he is a good guy and uh, and he's one of my favorites as well. I always enjoy talking to Doug and I'm glad that you were able to uh, get some inspiration from Doug. Uh, he is an amazing guy. Maya writes in, and the and the subject line here is one week at a time. And she says, Dear John, you always end your podcast by reminding us that you take this podcast one week at a time. And I've got to admit that at this moment in my life, um, that is giving me quite a bit of anxiety. And then she puts in parentheses, kidding. And then she says, kinda. And then she says, maybe. And then she says, not really. <laughs> I get it. She says, I'm only 34 years old and I'm only 14 months into sobriety. My life is turning upside down and inside out right now. My daddy went to, my daddy went to the doctor on December 23rd thinking he had pneumonia. Since that day we have found out that he has deep vein thrombosis. Uh, has a, has thrown a clot into his lungs, a pulmonary embolism, has lung cancer, and the cancer has metastasized to his liver and his bones. He also has advanced COPD, COPD. Due to the severity of his COPD, his body is too weak to handle any kind of cancer treatment. This past Wednesday, he, is ta- he was taken by an ambulance to the hospital because, because he wasn't breathing. He has taken several days, but the medical team has finally gotten his stats to a stable level. However, he is on five liters of oxygen to keep him stable. The maximum level of oxygen they can give him for home use is two liters. That means he is going to have to stay in the hospital for the foreseeable future and how short of a time they suspect he has left he will likely spend the remainder of his life there. My heart has been shattered. I am too young not to have my daddy. My kiddos are barely old enough to have memories of him yet, and he is the best grandpa in the history of grandpas. I am leaning on the fellowship right now more than I ever have leaned on anyone in my whole life. My relationship with my higher power has grown exponentially over the past few weeks. As I have told you previously, your podcast, My Meeting Between Meetings, and your guest have saved my sobriety and in turn my life on more than one occasion. Honoring our commitments is a big deal for us recovering alcoholics. I'm hoping that maybe I can convince you to skip that line about talking about the podcast week by week on your next episode and commit to at least one more week. I really need it. With so much love and gratitude, Maya H. Maya, my heart goes out to you. 
for those of you who are out there listening to this, maybe you can throw up a little prayer for Maya and her father and her entire family. Um, I relate. I've been there, Maya. I, I mean, I literally have been there. And uh, uh, I know it's tough, but love and gratitude and my appreciation back out to you. Thanks for being forthright. Keep us posted. Adrian writes in, and the subject line is Gary K. And he says, hi, John, I'm a big fan of Gary K. Well, me too, Mr. Adrian. And he says, but that last episode is simply astonishing. And what stroke, uh, and what struck me hard is that he mentioned at the beginning, obsession of drinking has been removed without sanity having been restored. Oh my God, he says. I read from page 52. We are having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had we had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy and we couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. And Johnny Boy, except two times, I identify with the rest of them. It's freaky horrible, man. And many other things like the elimination of the drink of drinking is just the beginning. Obviously, I have stopped the process of the elimination of drinking and I can't say that I'm happy and free. Anyway, I have had many thoughts about what I've heard. And the first is to get back to the big book study. I would like to thank you for your service and many, many thanks to the springs of wisdom called Gary K. Wish you all the best, bro, Adrian. Well, and as you know, Adrian, I copied uh, Gary K on that email and uh, he loved hearing from you and all your thoughts, and uh, God bless you, my friend. Um, keep us posted. You're a good guy, man. Here from Adrian on a consistent basis. All right, everybody. That var is another episode of uh, In the Can. So keep coming back. It works if you work it. This week, I'm not going to say I take this one week at a time just because of uh, the... Um, the uh, the uh, email from Maya. Um, I'm pretty darn sure we're going to be back next week. I'll put it that way. All right. God bless you guys. Uh, love to you. Thanks for writing in. Thanks for being a part of my life. Uh, even though I don't meet hardly any of you eyeball to eyeball, I feel we're all connected spiritually and um, we're trying to make a positive difference in this world one week at a time. Bye-bye now.